This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Dave Chase, his recent book titled The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call, Healthcare is Stealing the American Dream, Here's How to Take It Back. Mr. Chase, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to our chat. Uh, Dave Chase's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, according to the NIH, drug overdose deaths in 2017 numbered over 72,000. Over 19,000 of these were via opioid pain relievers. Uh, over 29,000 via synthetic opioids, predominantly fentanyl. Nearly 16,000 from heroin and close to 15,000 from cocaine. Listeners may recall I discussed the opioid epidemic with Steve Pasek this past February 2nd regarding opioid abuse to turn formulations, and on November 16th, 2016, with Stanford's Dr. Anna Lemke regarding her book, Drug Dealer MD. Since Mr. Chase's work, as he notes, is in response to, as he states in his introduction, our catastrophically dysfunctional healthcare system, I'll note here, wasteful healthcare spending amounts to approximately $1 trillion annually, or stated more bluntly, Americans are forced to spend $1 trillion each year for health care coverage and services that do not improve their health. So with that as a brief introduction, Dave, uh, let me ask with sort of the standard, uh, unimaginative, obvious question, apologies up front, what prompted you to write this work? Well, I'd really been diving into the employer side of the healthcare market, which, you know, even though half of Americans get their healthcare that way. Most people don't know that much about it, including myself once upon a time. And it was during that that it became so clear that opioids were a huge issue. And unfortunately, uh, as I got into that, uh, you recognize that most of the people impacted are working age people or their dependents. And as I really unpacked it and understood the level of complexity to the problem. I found 12 major drivers and uh, every addict needs an enabler. And unfortunately, the unwitting enabler of 11 of the 12 key drivers were employers. And so that was really what drove me to write the book. Thank you. Uh, Yes, most of this book actually is, and we'll get to the details here about uh, the employer market or self-insured employers providing coverage for their employees. Uh, let's stay with the opioid or the title, The Opioid Crisis, you say is not an anomaly. It illustrates a broader dysfunction, and then you list any number of reasons. Uh, could you identify some of those that you think are particularly uh, predominant or explain this crisis? Yeah, I mean, a couple that, that jump out to me. One is you could actually describe the opioid crisis as a crisis of primary care. We've essentially destroyed primary care in the U.S. over the last 20 years, which created very fertile ground for the crisis. And and uh, so you have these kind of drive-by appointments and employed 
primary care docs are rewarded on volume and you then you know, it leads to extraordinary rates of uh, prescribing for things such as lower back pain, which is the second most common issue that people enter the healthcare system for. And even though there's no evidence that opioids are actually effective for things like lower back pain, they were prescribed there. And so that was one big thing is, is we have kind of this quick fix mentality that has infused into the system because these poor primary care docs are put on this hamster wheel. They got to get people in and out. And then another key related issue is we pay for things that there's not evidence for, like I mentioned, and then we don't pay or make it very difficult to access things that there is strong evidence for, such as physical therapy. And, you know, these are the sort of things that are very systemic. Um, and if you don't get at those systemic issues, that, you know, really the musculoskeletal issues in general, um, but back pain in particular, those are the biggest on-ramps. Um, the single biggest driver of opioid prescriptions is lower back pain, even though there's not evidence it actually is effective. Yes, thank you. I, I, I did genuinely appreciate your noting the lack of primary care or how primary care is delivered, as you say, drive-by, um, the fact we overprescribe, the quick fix problem, and use for non-cancer pain. I'll just note some others which I thought were were excellently uh, discussed, and that is uh, pharma sales blitz, a economic distress weaker, community resilience, uh, mental disorders treated with opioids, patient satisfaction uh, scores, lack of specialist criminality, declining reimbursement, uh, insurers, as you just noted, refusing to cover other treatments. So there's a whole litany or list um, that yep. explain... Uh, this, all of them, I think, excellently identified and noted. Uh, although I will say on the prescribing, ironically, I think we are, uh, we have the, the two dynamics working in tandem, and it's odd that they do so, and that is we're, uh, we undertreat pain generally, and we overprescribe it at the same time, which is, has a certain irony to it. Um, my read of your work, and correct me if I'm wrong, so I'll throw this out as a question, is largely about, and you do get into the detail in the employer market here, but my read was the work's largely about, and you do know we're in this greatest economic crisis in 100 years, and that's why I noted the spending that's wasteful annually. Um, and that is, would you agree that largely this is a problem of pricing distortion and, and opacity? Yeah, that's a huge issue. Um, I mean, I view the the three biggest issues that's at the top, you know, I call pricing failure. Mm -hmm. There's no correlation between what you pay and the value you receive. Um, two over treatment, three administrative, um, you know, bloat basically, but overwhelmingly pricing failure is what sets us apart from other countries. Um, you know, cause as far as over treatment is a problem in other places too, we're actually not that different. Mm-hmm. than other places. And then, you know, the administrative bloat is a, a challenge too because we have pretty much every flavor of healthcare under the sun, you know, between the various systems. So that puts a lot of burden on the, um, you know, healthcare provider organizations and in all of us really. Okay, thank you. Let's let's go into this, uh, into the employer market in some detail. 
Um, there's a substantial amount of discussion in all relative to the related moving pieces or parts. You discuss uh, the problems or conflicts of interest with benefit brokers, uh, saying um, they're not necessarily serving their client, they're uh, serving the carrier. The employers themselves are ostensibly not doing their job or, or their due diligence. And we can get into the fact that, in partly, this is a result of the tax exclusion. Um, these are tax-free dollars. And then you go into any number of other uh, related problems that compound just the massive lost opportunity in the employer market. But just generally, what's your, if you could provide an overview of how the employer market is failing? Yeah, you you nailed it in terms of um, the lack of disclosure on how the benefits industry is paid. Essentially, the for better or for worse, and, and unfortunately it's mainly been for worse, most organizations defer their decisions to their benefits broker. And these brokers are pitching themselves as essentially buyer's agents, but they're paid like seller's agents. You know, we find that, you know, our, our nonprofit essentially is certifying these folks and that are doing it right. And they'll find up to 17 undisclosed revenue streams that the employer has no idea about. And they're against their economic interest. And so that's, that's a big issue. And then, uh, the other, uh, one of the other big issues is it's interesting because the, the regulatory framework that health benefits sit under is ERISA, mm-hmm. you know, was in since the first month of the Ford administration. And, you know, having been a business executive myself, uh, on the retirement benefit side, which is the other half of what's regulated under ERISA, it's health and retirement benefits, companies take it very seriously. Um, you know, if you were to put your employee's money into Uncle Bubba's investment fund, you know, that had high fees, terrible returns, kickbacks to the broker, uh, you do, you would get your butt sued. And there have been cases, class action cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court unanimously in favor of the, you know, plaintiffs, the employee plaintiffs, uh, for frankly, you know, chicken feed compared to what's going on in healthcare. Things like, uh, paying retail brokerage rates when they should have paid wholesale rates. I think that was the key issue at the Supreme Court case. Um, whereas on the healthcare side, it's remarkable how little attention is paid. And, and as I've found, it really comes back to it was viewed as the employer's money since they were paying the uh, premium and therefore the fiduciary standard, you know, when you're stewarding somebody else's money, like in a retirement plan, that's a very high duty, one of the highest duties under law. Um, but they, you know, I think it's a mistake that they considered the employer's money because at the end of the day, a dollar is a dollar and that was what suppressed wages for 20 years. But that's watered under the bridge today. You just can't make that argument anymore. It's a 70-30 split in terms of employer-employee. Mm-hmm. You have over half the workforce has a th- over a $1,000 deductible. So it's clearly the employee's money, uh, yet the level of care is just absurdly low uh, that's being applied. And that's what I think is going to be a big driver of change is there's brewing legal activity around ERISA fiduciary lawsuits like has happened on the 401k side. Um, but to date, you know, there's been relatively little 
attention paid to it. And, you know, here we are, you know, years later, and it's not that employers aren't spending a lot more money on employees than 20 years ago. The problem is all the dollars have gone to healthcare. And so you now have an economic depression for the working and middle class twice as long as the Great Depression because of that. Right, yes, flat wages or no wage growth. Your ERISA chapter, I thought, was yep. interesting in the last chapter of the work. Part of it is uh, what explains this misspending of the employee's money, actually, is, uh, you know, you get into some weedy detail about auto adjudication, which I appreciated, but the bottom line is that employers are not pressing for transparent claims data. So it always is wondering, curious to me, why employers... Why aren't they doing a better job, as you analogize to? They do better job relative to managing um, employees' retirement funds, but here it's quite the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it goes back to once upon a time, healthcare costs weren't that big, mm-hmm. and so CEO said to HR, "Keep our people happy, don't get us sued." Um, and then they didn't give them much, um, you know, support in terms of resources. And, you know, it was just one of many duties. And then the power of compound interest year after year, it goes from being, you know, probably something that's not that much bigger deal than, you know, your Christmas party budget or something to something that's the second or third biggest cost for most employers. Um, and so now you have this huge problem, um, but old habits die hard. And so it's only now that um, these companies that are otherwise are problem solvers in every other area of their business, mm-hmm. uh, there's this tyranny of low expectation that the best we can hope for is just to pay more and get less every year uh, and that you can't control health care costs. And, and that's just not true, um, but most people think it's true. And the industry, um, you know, it's a $3.5 trillion industry. And, you know, earlier in my career, you know, I was part of the problem of these people who are, waking up every day, figuring out how do they extract as much money out of the asleep-at-the-wheel employers, and they're very adept at it. Um, and so until you have the mindset like, gee, this is like in your corporate IT department, you're always worrying about hackers breaking into your system, and it's a cat-and-mouse game, and, and every day you got to you know, bring your, your best you know, A-game – and, you know, in a lot of ways, the healthcare system is like those hackers. They're just trying to pull money out of your organization. And it's, you know, far greater financial exposure than, uh, you know, the hackers, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll get to uh, solutions. You talk about transparent open networks, et cetera. You give examples of provider groups who are at risk, and you do spend some time on direct primary care. But before we get to all of that, there are a few issues I thought uh, that I, I found were somewhat unconventional. So I'll, I'll note a few, a few of these and feel free to comment on any or all. You do note relative to your last, this, your last comment that prices are actually falling and you provide some data thereof. Uh, not surprisingly, you say prices are not correlated to underlying costs. I think that's generally viewed. You are not a fan of medical loss ratios, uh, in part because you argue fraud, fraud prevention is not considered quote-unquote care and then can be counted. Uh, you do make an interesting point yep. about risk pool size. Uh, you argue, I think, essentially that smaller is better, although, of course, the, the general view is risk pool, the larger, the better. You, you do, I think, I agree with you, you do 
make no positive comments about workplace wellness. So those were a few, but I'm, maybe I'm particularly interested in your MLR view. Uh, could you say more about, and this was legislated in the ACA, uh, you're not a fan of medical yeah. loss ratios. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good in theory, right? You, you collect a dollar in premium, you want as much to go towards care as possible. But in practical reality, um, this was very clear. I, I had detoured away from healthcare for a decade, came back, you know, around the time the ACA passed, and know that, you know, these companies, the carriers, have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders and they provide guidance that they're going to increase their profits, you know, say 15% every year. And so, and the medical loss ratio before the ACA was typically 60 to 65 cents of every dollar was going towards medical claims. claims. And so, yeah. And so now it's 80 or 85% depending on the size of the business. And so, they, they still have this legal duty to their shareholders to increase profits. And so it becomes a very predictable scenario. The only way you can increase profits is to increase the spending because if your percentage cap is capped 15% or 20% to get back to sort of the equivalent of that 35, 40%, you have to ensure that costs go up. So it's a very convenient partnership that goes on between the carriers and the hospitals to drive costs up. And so, you know, I, I think it was June 4th, 2010, that happens to be my birthday, so I knew that when it was, I wrote this piece um, when I came back. It was like, rates are going to go up 50% to do exactly what happened. Um, and so that's, that's the medical loss ratio. Um, and then do you want me to touch on a few of the other issues you brought up yeah, as well? Yeah, the, the one I think maybe second order for me is this risk pool size. Now, part of your argument is you do encourage employers, smaller employers, that there are advantages to being self-insured. So that supports uh, that a smaller risk pool is, is sustainable in your view. But please, yes, could you please say more about uh, what is, in your view, an adequate uh, risk pool size? Yeah, and it's the um, – I would just clarify what I was saying there, too. A smaller employer um, can do things off the radar where a larger employer, when they do something in a particular market, uh, the hospitals are very uh, effective at bludgeoning them PR-wise if they're, you know, removed from the network. Whereas your smaller, you know, that's just not as defended a turf, so they can do things that basically nobody, nobody notices about. But in terms of the risk pool size, the real um, carriers of risk besides the employer are actually the stop-loss carriers. The so-called insurance companies are really just claims processors. It's not their money that's at risk. So you mm-hmm. have these essentially reinsurance pools, um, these stop-loss carriers, sometimes they're called. Um, they have a meaningful uh, risk pool size that then can um, you know, recognize what well, you know, you would certainly expect that a bigger pool size can mm-hmm. level out, you know, how many people on dialysis or hemophilia or cancer or whatever. And so um, they, the, the smaller self-insured employer just needs to work with good folks there. Um, and then, you know, when, when they have a well-designed plan, they can get good breaks um, from the stop-loss carrier because the stop-loss carrier knows if you go to provider X for, say, cancer, you're going to have much better outcomes. 
And so, you know, they want to ensure there's good plan design for that. Um, but that's where it's kind of the pool size gets bigger. It's just more of the, uh, the smaller player tends to be a single location. Um, whereas the large employer, you know, the whatever Macy's, they've got people all over the country. Um, it's just more, there's more complexity. Um, so the smaller player has relatively less you know, less complexity to do these things that uh, are, you know, proving to allow an employer to spend 20, 40, 50% less per capita with actually superior benefits. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So per your former point, though, interesting that it's not the self-insured per se that's at most risk. It's um, the stop loss or reinsurance carrier and their pools uh, in their business model have to be uh, much larger because they're really carrying the outlier, uh, as you say, the, yeah. uh, uh, the, the patient with uh, stage four cancer, for example. Um, yeah. Let me go to, uh, and this is by way of getting into the solution side. Uh, you do say, you did discuss off and on direct primary uh, contracting, uh, DPC. Um, you give some examples or companies. Uh, I think the um, uh, I'm looking at my notes. I think Rosen Hotel and Resorts may have a DPC contract, but I mentioned DPC because the Medicare program is about to announce a, uh, they call it direct provider contracting. It's somewhat of a difference without a distinction, yeah. but they're about to announce a demonstration in this. But what explains your support for um, this model? Yeah, I mean, it starts with there's no well-functioning uh healthcare system in the world that I know of that isn't built on the foundation of proper primary Primary care. care, Yes. Um, Yeah. And so uh, I talk about value-based primary care, direct primary care being one example of that. There's a few other models. And so in that uh, scenario, whether it's Rosen or whether it's Denmark, when you have proper primary care versus this drive-by undermine primary care that, that is more mainstream today in the U.S., uh, you can address, depending on the situation, over 80 to 90 percent of the issues that people enter the healthcare system for, whereas today, typical seven-minute appointment, you know, what can you do but, you know, order a test, prescribe, you know, refer to a specialist, maybe hospitalize, all these things that, of course, the hospital wants because they make a lot of money doing that, and that's why they gobbled up these practices, whereas... A Rosen is an example where they actually um, went to the extreme of staffing it up themselves on an on-site clinic, um, but the basic model is the same, and it's a fully actualized primary care what not only includes the the doc, but they've got dietitian, health coach, pharmacist, physical therapist, chiropractor, mental health. Um, and so things, you know, they have a workforce that's got a physically demanding job, you know, with maids and maintenance workers and so on. And so they recognize things like back pain we are talking about earlier, which is the second reason, most common reason people enter the healthcare system for. Uh, they thought initially maybe they'd need a physical therapist half a day a week. Well, they have actually have it full time. So they not only are there for these acute episodes, that in other settings they might be getting opioid there they address and then better yet you know they focus on real wellness not the so-called 
you know, corporate wellness programs that are, you know, not effective. And they go into the workplace, teach people how to, you know, lift properly, how to strengthen their core, uh, stretch, and so on. Things that are very, very proven to uh, keep back pain and musculoskeletal issues at bay. And, you know, one of the kind of remarkable statistics there is 2% of the entire U.S. economy is tied up in squandered money on non-evidence-based, non-value-add musculoskeletal procedures. I mean, like Starbucks did a study with Virginia Mason on their spinal procedures, fully 90% of them didn't help at all. Um, so if we avoid squandering money like that, then we can put it towards things that actually do drive health. Right. Yes. Virginia Mason in Seattle, not surprisingly partnering uh, with Starbucks yep. and Virginia known as a center uh, for excellent excellence in, in several yep. uh, disease conditions. Uh, let's stay with this. And so you mentioned Iora Health. This is Rashika Fernandopoul's organization. You do mention Peak yep. Meds, Direct Primary Care, Vera Whole Health. But I was particularly interested in the city of Milwaukee. Um, what did they do? Yeah, I mean, they they invested in primary care. I mean, that's really the the recurring theme across a lot of the case studies I have in my book is they get primary care and then they um, they direct people towards high-value providers. And one of the overlooked benefits of proper primary care is, sure, they can address acute episodes. They can, you know, in a good setting, Iora, for example, is really good at going upstream and preventive stuff. But the thing that tends to get overlooked is, you know, directing people to high-value centers. There's really extraordinary rates of, of misdiagnosis and overtreatment in some of the high-cost areas. And if you're a patient, you know, who do you think you're going to trust more, your employer, your insurance company, or your doctor? Um, you know, it's clear that it's the doctor. There are the you know, the three most trusted professions in order are nurse, doctor, pharmacist. And so when they're not conflicted, um, they can say, hey, you know, this is where you want to go. This is where my patients go. They do a great job. And then uh, even if the unit cost is higher for, say, an organ transplant at the Mayo Clinic, they don't uh, overtreat uh, and they don't have complications. And so those are the sort of things that, uh, folks like the city of Milwaukee do is just make sure people get to those high value uh, places. And then also another area of low hanging fruit is pharmacy spend. There's just a lot of um, shenanigans going on with the pharmacy benefit managers, so-called PBM. Right. Yes. And if, if you pay attention to that, um, you really don't have to change much, um, but just get the, you know, uh, there's, there's just crazy things going on where the PBMs, will pay for some new drug like Duexis that's a combination of two over-the-counter pills that might cost $14 and they're charging 3000 bucks for them, um, you know, because they make money on the, you know, we would call kickbacks. I mean, there's, they call them something different, but it's basically a kickback uh, that happens. And so those are things that are low-hanging fruit, easy way to save money. Right, they would say rebate or discount. Right, yes. Yeah, um, yeah they'll say rebate, discount, right. um, you know, clawback, spreads. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. Right, right. 
the theme here again is the implication here is transparency, and that's what these I mentioned these tons transparency open networks. Let me go to with the time remaining. Yep. You are per your bio uh, co-founder of Health Rosetta. Health Rosetta, you reference or the blueprint of Health Rosetta and principles is, is Appendix F in the volume. Uh, let's spend a moment or two if you can explain what your intent was or what Health Rosetta is intended to uh, do to help uh, uh, buyers. Yeah, I mean, the, the analogy that I draw is, uh, one is, I believe, that what the healthcare system in, is doing to uh, the average American is the greatest immediate threat to the country. And when I look at the, the scale of the challenge, it's there with civil rights and climate change and, you know, better food and so on. And realizing the incredible entrenched interest, how on earth do you uh, deal with that? And I use the analogy of LEAD, which you may be familiar with, which essentially is a blueprint for sustainable building practices. Mm-hmm. And, and what they did was mainstreamed, you know, once fringe idea 20 years ago of, you know, green built buildings. And they accredited architects and then they certified buildings. And so the, the equivalent of the architect uh, in healthcare is the benefits consultant and the benefit professional. And so we're accrediting them, um, and uh, and then ultimately we'll be certifying uh, plans. But uh, the idea is, like LEAD, healthcare is very entrenched. It's not something you change overnight any more than the built environment. And also, like LEAD, very localized, and there's particular geographies. You know, in the case of Lee, like Portland, Oregon, and Boulder, and Austin, who are early adopters. And that's what you see here, where particular locales, like, you know, maybe some somewhat obvious places, like uh, Denver or Seattle, and then less obvious places, like Tyler, Texas, they're basically fixing healthcare community by community. And, you know, community could be even more micro, could be like a Rosen Hotels, you know, a particular employer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we see this, this really like all great societal problems that we've been tackling. They start grassroots, bottom up. You know, eventually the politicians will run to the front of the parade and we'd certainly <laughs> encourage the, um, uh, you know, public sector to remember uh, the one role that people tend to forget about with the public sector uh, you know, besides their role as a, a regulator uh, and as a, a purchaser in public health, the one that gets forgotten is is um, their role as an employer. And, you know, frankly, they're doing just as bad a job uh, as a typical employer. And we've seen the, the, you know, things like the DOD being early adopters of advanced battery technology or GPS. Why not have it be here? You know, things we were talking about earlier, like proper primary care they should be doing that and and that's where you know the opioid issue is an interesting catalyst because it's so bad and getting so much attention um there are things that you start to see states and counties do where they're saying okay we're going to look at the prescribing patterns in our um you know employee base and find the outlier prescribers who aren't following CDC guidelines because that's pretty much where all the problems emanate. And so they can identify them, get them to change behavior or remove them from the network. And the nice thing is those same prescribers, those doctors, nurse practitioners, and so on, 
they, of course, care for other people. You know, so that's the type of thing where um, they can solve their own problem. And most government entities, whether it's a local town, a school district, or a state, are all struggling budget-wise. Um, and so, you know, they can adopt these standards just as you see in a lot of states. All the public buildings follow LEED standards. Mm-hmm. You know, why not have them follow great purchasing standards for healthcare? That's what we'd encourage. Makes sense. Makes sense. And you do uh, imply the spillover effect or benefit. So, um, yeah. uh, Dave, we're at our we're at our time. So, uh, I'll say I appreciate this um, interesting work. My congratulations. I- I'd say you're all about disruption, and uh, don't we need it? So, thank you. I hope I hope your your work is widely read and considered. And maybe we can touch base uh, down the road and see. Uh, see what progress has been made. But for your time now, again, I'm very appreciative. Well, I appreciated the opportunity. Definitely be more than happy to have the follow-up. And, uh, you know, we're pleased in, you know, a year since we launched the certification for these these architects of health plans, there's already about 4 million lives that they're responsible for that are in the program. So for sure a long ways to go, but a nice start, you know, after a little over a year. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.